Take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 1. I like this time of the year because we have successfully maneuvered the off-season and football is right around the corner. And I'm always intrigued with sports commentators about this time of the year because they start the prognostications. And the prognostications always involve a certain amount of unknown and that's what kind of makes it a guess and maybe even an educated guess, but they're always assuming the best. Even Cowboys fans have hope at the end of July. And I like listening to the discussions as they turn to role players on teams. And the basic storyline, let's take the Cowboys as an example. The, the storyline is, you know, you have these key role players, and if they'll have good seasons, then maybe the Cowboys will make it. Uh, I learned a long time ago not to trust that. But, for instance, if, if Tony Romo can just come through, Or let's push it to a different sport. At our house, we've been watching the world's game lately because the United States men's national soccer team has been playing through the tournament known as the Gold Cup. And it's where this region of the planet uh, comes together and you have to qualify and so the those who qualify go into the tournament and there's this you know the the session where they're playing all in one group the pool play and then it gets into the elimination play well this afternoon four o'clock or thereabouts the United States men's national soccer team will play for the championship of the gold cup against Panama now what's intrigued me about that is next year next summer is the world cup every four years a worldwide tournament of soccer and it's the creme de la creme of all sports events because it's a true world tournament. And the United States team is trying to figure out who they're going to be and who's going to get to play. And we've got this new coach from Germany because we don't produce soccer players here who can coach apparently. So we got this guy from Europe and he's coaching us and we're on this winning streak. And, and they brought in one of the old guard. Now I'm old enough now to appreciate the old guard when they come in and contribute. But the real story on the American soccer team this year is that they're trying to determine which of these young guys are going to make the team and be the next generation of role players. Role players. Now, what gets lost in that is if it's a team sport, everybody has a role to play. Now, I learned that when I was playing team sports way back when. That even though I played my position well, if the guy in front of me didn't block well, then I couldn't do my job. Everybody has a role. You with me so far? All right. So let me just stop now and let's make it uncomfortable. What's your role in the kingdom of God? This is the team sport of all team sports, if you want to push the analogy a little bit. God has said to us, his body, his family... I have a role for you to play in my kingdom's work. All right, I want to take that idea, and I want you to kind of set it to the side for a second, and now I want to start talking about the comparisons that happen among teammates. Now, this doesn't just happen in sports stuff. Let me move the whole analogy now to the business world. 
Now, I'm going to pick on you guys out here who are salesmen, okay? So understand I'm picking on you from the outset, but the story is a very real story, and you guys are going to like the end of it, all right? Um, <laughs> when I worked in the oil field, uh, I was not a salesman. Uh, I, you know, I, I told a guy one time who was a real salesman, I said, you know, I just, I could never do sales because when somebody tells me no, I take their word for it. I don't need, okay, I don't like the high pressure stuff. They say, no, I don't need that. Okay, I'm done. To which he replied, are you kidding? I don't even start selling until they say no. That's why I don't like those guys most of the time. It's the high pressure stuff. Now I'm joking about that. My dad, before he was in the ministry, worked as a computer guy in the mid-60s in Houston. I've told you that before. That was the, kind of the ground floor computer stuff. Uh, that was in very real uh, reality. That was a specialist position to be working with computers in the 1960s. Uh, and dad went to work with an insurance company. If I told you the name of the company, everybody in here would recognize it. And he went to work for this insurance company as a computer guy. And um, he had a couple of other guys on his team, and they didn't like the insurance salespeople for that particular office. And so they were in the break room one day, and my dad's coworker was going off about the salespeople, the prima donnas, you know, the ones who get all the perks. You know, we're in here working, and they're out there playing golf with some client. Tough job. Taking them to lunch. Tough job. So they're just going off in the break room. About halfway into that discussion, and my dad's teammate was pretty much going off, and the boss walked in. And the boss stood there and he listened to that for a couple of minutes, two or three minutes, thereabouts. And then he pulled up a chair, he sat down across from this guy who was going off, and he said, let me tell you something. There is not a piece of paper that gets turned in this company if that salesman doesn't sell. In other words, if that salesman doesn't do his job, you don't even have a job. We don't need you to do computer stuff if our salesman doesn't sell something. Well, as you can imagine, that killed that conversation in the break room. But I give it to you to underscore this reality. On every job I've ever been on, among the working people of that job, there's always a comparison that's going on. There's this comparison that says, my job is more important than your job or his job or her job. Now, usually you hear that in the sense of, I, I, I should get paid more. I work harder. I have longer. Whatever it happens to be, there's always this comparison that's going on. Everybody has a role. You remember that? And now the reality is we see that there's always this comparison going on. Who's most important? Let's take that whole discussion and let's shift it to the kingdom of God. Now I ask you already, what is the role that you play in the kingdom of God? Now we know that Paul talks about some of this stuff, uh, and especially what I want to do though is I want to pull the comparative part of that into the middle of our discussion. Let's do it this way. Everybody got to at least have a pretty good idea of what your role in the kingdom of God is. Whose job in the kingdom of God is more important, yours or Billy Graham? Now maybe I should stop here. Um, 
Billy Graham is an evangelist, okay? Now, for us old people, we know very well who he is. Matter of fact, most people would say, in my generation and older, that he is the greatest evangelist for the cause of Christ in our generation, okay? Some people, and probably those we would call experts in the field, would say that he's one of the greatest evangelists of all time. Now, do you catch the comparison that's already happening in there? It's not just in the overall kingdom of God, but among evangelists now we're comparing. But let's just put it right there in the middle of your chair this morning. Comparatively speaking, whose job is more important in the kingdom of God, yours or Billy Graham's? And we all know that's kind of a set-up kind of a question. So let's take it off of Billy Graham. Let's get right down on where we all live. How about, comparatively speaking, kingdom of God, importance, you... Or Joel Osteen. Now here's the deal. Our mind seems to go to, those guys speak to millions, and I'm just a church person. And if we're not careful, we convince ourselves that those people are more important, comparatively speaking, in God's kingdom than I am, or than you are. Let's try this one. Who's more important, the kingdom of God, you or John the Baptist? Now, either you're sleeping or I got you thinking a little bit. Now, at this point, um, there's a wicked turn in our discussion. Because Jesus says... Well, let's just look at what he says. John, actually, excuse me, Luke, chapter 7. Now, I had you go to chapter 1, and I'll get you there in just a minute. But in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is talking about this guy named John the Baptist. All right? Now, you know in our discussions what we're doing in here, in this series that we're working through, we're just almost two months now into a study of Luke's gospel. We haven't even gotten to the birth of Jesus yet. Now, that's on purpose for Luke, and we need to understand that's why I'm taking all this time to look at what Luke is actually saying in this. He gives John the Baptist a lot of space in these first couple of chapters. And as a matter of fact, we're going to get to Luke chapter 3, and most of, all, most of Luke chapter 3 is about John the Baptist, not about Jesus. Chapter 2 is the birth narrative. That's Christmas time. We'll get to it before Christmas. But Luke chapter 3, he goes right back to John the Baptist. So apparently in this role-playing thing, John the Baptist has a big role. So Luke chapter 7 and verse 28, here's what Jesus says. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now time out. Did Jesus just do a comparison? Yes? All right, but listen to what else he says. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now this sounds like one of those typical Jesus brain scratchers for us. Wait a minute. Among those born among women, or born of women, none is greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. So which is it, Jesus? And Jesus says, absolutely. So before we go any further, I want to dig a little bit here. By the way, I'm going to cover all through chapter 3 today, so just buckle up. This idea of role players is pretty common for us. We talk about that in different ways in our church setups and all of that kind of stuff. And 
We know that we have a role to play, and some of us say, nah, just let somebody else do that. And so I don't want to be a role player. I don't want to have a role. We, we understand all of that stuff, and we get the, you know, the comparison part. That's just natural part of human nature. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, Jesus lays on to us now a critical thing. Now, Luke brings it in, and Luke brings it in on the lips of Zechariah. We're going to be back in chapter 1 in just a few minutes. It's comparative analysis of our role in the kingdom of heaven. Who's what? And Luke now has given us all this space talking about John the Baptist. He's not even the main character of Luke's story. But he's getting a lot of space. Why is that? In this opening section of Luke's gospel, John rises to the surface. Jesus, in chapter 7, effectively puts a close to that chapter. And when he says that among, women, among those born to women, John is the greatest, here's the whole picture of that. Well, let me do it this way. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1, and let's listen a little bit to what Zechariah says as a prophecy about his son who has just been born. To put it all in context for you, remember there was the prophecy. Gabriel came to uh, Zechariah and said, you're going to have a son. I know it's past childbearing age for your wife. This is what's going to happen. This is going to be his role. And Zechariah said, ah, surely not. That can't be true. And Zechariah says, whoop, don't say anything else for nine months. And so he's struck mute for nine months. When he finally has this son and they go to name him and they name him what the angel said they're supposed to name him, Zechariah now has the ability to speak. And we pick up in chapter 1, verse 67, and here's what Zechariah has to say. I want you to listen to the intent of what he's talking about in these first handful of verses. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. I'm going to stop reading there because that's the first part of what he does. And Zechariah, in this set of prophecies, goes two places. The first one we just read is all focused on the activity of God. The second one has to do with the boy, and we're going to get to that in just a second, but I don't want to be too quick to get off of the first half of this. What Zechariah does in those handful of verses we just read is he reaches back as far as he could reach in their heritage. And he gives this prophecy about what God is doing now in this son of his and the promise of what his son will be and do. But in doing that, he reaches all the way backwards in their heritage. We see Abraham mentioned in there. But reality says he's going even further back than that. Luke is giving us his story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ and John the Baptist's role in that is part of a story that goes way back to the beginning of creation in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve said, we will be God. We will decide what we eat and don't eat. We won't listen to what God said. 
Does that sound like America in the 21st century? You see, that's everybody of every century because that's the human condition. We just love control. So see, your wife or your husband is not cornering the market on this control freakism. It's the human condition. And started in the garden with Adam and Eve. And when they decided that they would be God of their lives, the relationship with their creator was broken by sin. And that brokenness of relationship stretches all the way to us today. But the Bible is God's record of God's movement to fix the problem. And so we find that in the opening pages of this history we call the Bible. And all the way through, it is an account of God as he is involved in the lives of people to try to move them to the point where he can restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden, a relationship with himself. Every step of the way. So we get all the way to Genesis chapter 6 and we see God as he definitively steps in. And then again in Genesis chapter 12 with this guy named Abram who would be called Abraham. And God steps into that mix and he says, I'm going to begin the process through this group of people to win humanity back to myself. We call that salvation history. The Bible is not intended to be a historical textbook in a classroom. It is the account of a holy God as he reaches into an unholy mess that man has caused as he moves us definitively to the point where Jesus Christ comes, God in the flesh, and he redeems mankind through his sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection. That's good news. That's the high point of all of salvation history to date. And John the Baptist... Steps into the mix, well, he's born into the mix, at a crucial time. It's been 400 years in this ongoing salvation history. God using the people of Israel and all of this world, as we call it. And John the Baptist, born 400 years after there had been no voice from God being heard. And Jesus says, because of that, his place in salvation history, he is the greatest of all to that point. Those prophets that we see in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Moses, all the way through, these were prophets who had looked forward to the one who would come, who would be the one who pulled God's people back and became the Messiah. And all of a sudden, John hits the ground And Jesus says, among those born to women, he's the greatest. Why is that true? Because he's the last of that generation. John represents for us the last of the Old Testament picture. And also, at the same time, going into the New Testament reality. So Jesus says of him, those born among men, he's the greatest. He got to see the Messiah. None of those other prophets got to touch the Messiah. John took him, baptized him. John's the one who said, this is the guy I've been telling you about. That's what we're going to find in chapter 3. So Jesus says he's the greatest. 
But then Jesus turns right around and he says, but in the kingdom of heaven, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Why is that? Because John died before he could see who Jesus was and what he did. So those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, looking backwards to the cross and the resurrection, all of theology says that we're in better position than John was. So Jesus does this comparative analysis. Well, that's a lot of background. I'm still in the introduction of what we're talking about today. But that's the picture. So I ask you again the question that I started in role-playing in God's kingdom. Who's greater, you or John the Baptist? Jesus says, absolutely. Yes, you, John. Yes, absolutely. All right, so let's take it another step. I want to take all that that I just got through talking about back to these verses that we just read in, John, in Luke chapter 1. Did you notice again the emphasis that Zechariah gives? I'm just going to read a couple of these verses again. I want you to hear the emphasis on the salvation history and God's ongoing involvement with that. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Verse uh, 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David. He's reaching back into his roots. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies. 73, uh, excuse me, 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Here's a nutshell summary of what uh, Luke has done on Zechariah's lips for us. He has said, God in John the Baptist has been definitively keeping his promises. Now, here's what I want us to get from this. Well, I'm taking all of this time on this this morning. Let's come right down to where we live. God is very interested. No, that word's not enough. God is deliberate. He's intentional. That still doesn't quite get it for me. God is all in on keeping his word. You know why that's a good word for us? Why I'm willing to take 15 minutes of our time this morning to hit that? Because you need him to keep his word. I'm struck in my experiences these days with the amount of pain that this world is inflicting on people. I don't, I don't know what the deal is. If it's just the July heat or economic realities or what. I, I don't know, but I can tell you this. I, I'm struck with the number of people that are coming through our lives in this corner of the world these days who are in real pain. Now, one of the first messages I preached when I came here was asking the question, what do you see? I'm going to challenge you again to open your spiritual eyes and see what's going on around us. I, I don't know how many people we've, come, we've had come through the doors of our church in the office over there over the last couple of weeks who are coming in saying, I need help. I, I can't pay my bills I don't even have gas to go to whatever. You know, we get some. I don't have gas to get to a court date. 
This world is doing a bang-up job on hurting people. Have you figured that out? We need God to keep his word. Let me give you a couple of examples, okay? Now, Zechariah, he's going all the way back in this ongoing salvation history thing. He's going way back. And he's saying, in this birth of my son, God is saying for 2,000 years, I keep my word. It's good news. So for us, here's one off of the lips of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know anybody in this world who's alone? I know most of them are surrounded by people, but they're alone. I know one circumstance, not anybody from this church or this area, but they're living in a situation where their life partner every day goes a little bit further away even though they live in the same house. Something about the aging process can pull that off. They're there, but they're not there. That's not confined to the person I'm talking about. That's everywhere. You know people. In your life, same story. For those caregivers in situations like that, oh, they're alone. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you walked in here and one last shot you're going to give God a chance. I'll tell you something. Jesus says to you, I will never leave you. Now, we're good at leaving him, but his promise is, I'm all in with you. Here's another one. I'll let you finish it. Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You tired this morning? <laughs> oh, man, we, we all have PhDs and tired. I woke up this morning to get ready to come to church. <laughs> you know what I thought at 4.15? I'm tired. Is that the kind of tired Jesus is talking about? Yes. It's not limited to that, but yes. But again, we do some of this stuff to ourselves. We schedule ourselves and plan ourselves, and we have created a miracle in our time. We figured out how to put 28 hours of work in a 24-hour period. But it wears us out. And then when something really happens to us, like, for instance, a health crisis, well, now we're going to really get tired. Or a financial crisis. And we haven't even started getting tired on those things yet. Because they just have a way of pressing in and driving us deeper and deeper. And we run out of energy and we start running on fumes. And emotionally, we're a wreck. And Jesus said, come to me. I will give you rest. Let me tell you something. I need him to keep his word. And so do you. So here's what I get. First part of what Zechariah had to say. God promised this one called John the Baptist. 
promised it a long time before Zechariah was in that place at the temple and Gabriel showed up and gave him the message. That was just the latest shot in this thing we call salvation history. And for nine months, Zechariah got to think about that. And so when it came time for him to open up, he had something to say about what God was doing. But he also says something about this boy. And so I want to give this to you, and this will be your homework for the day. And this is where that comparative thing really starts kicking in. Notice what he says. We pick up reading now in verse 76. And Zechariah says, and you, child... Now, my dad would have said it this way. Now, boy, (laughs) and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. By the way, let me just tell you, in what we're about to read, five different statements of prophecy about John the Baptist. Your homework is go to chapter 3 and see how all five of those are fulfilled just in what we find in chapter 3. Here's the first one. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Second one is, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Third one is verse 77 and 78, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Verse 79 gives us the last two, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, those are five things that Zechariah says are going to be true of his son. How do you summarize that? Let me say it a different way. Here's why Luke gives so much space to John the Baptist in these early chapters of his gospel. John the Baptist was to be about the process of pointing people to Christ. That's all that says. Five different ways. Now, I'll tell you, John's role was superior to ours. We've talked about that already. He was the only one who could be the promised prophet before Christ came. But I'm going to tell you this morning, there's a little bit of John the Baptist in all of us in today's church. Because the reality is that our role in the kingdom of God, among other things, is to do exactly what John the Baptist was about. To prepare a way for the Savior. Let me come back to it and say it this way. I've said to you many times, and you will, you know, if God strikes me dead soon. Some of you are hoping, I know. If God strikes me dead soon or I get to stay here, whatever. One of the things I want you to remember is this statement. God has strategically placed you in a circle of people who desperately need Jesus Christ. And if you don't have people like that in your circle, you're backslidden from your purpose. Jesus himself said that we are called to be salt and light. To be his witnesses. On the lips of Paul, we find that we are ambassadors for Christ. God has strategically placed you in a circle of people who desperately need Jesus Christ. And that little bit of John the Baptist in you is called to bear witness to the light. Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, 
God in the flesh, Redeemer, Savior. The high point of all of that salvation history we talked about. John the Baptist stands in Luke's gospel as a shining light of what it means to be a storyteller. We tell the story not of ourselves, but of our Savior. It's a family trait. We start comparison. I, I told you last week, we'll make sure I get it on the record one more time. My brother's new grandson is very ugly compared to my beautiful granddaughter. That's a, it's a comparative thing. I, I don't want to be mean to you, but your grandkids are not nearly as pretty as mine is. I'm sorry. Just It is what it is. <laughs> See how we, we just do the comparison thing. Uh, you know, my truck looks better than his truck or whatever it happens to be. But here's the character, the family trait for all of us that we find Luke emphasizing in John the Baptist. Every one of us who call on the name of Jesus Christ are storytellers. And we take the good news of Jesus Christ into a very dark world. Let me tell you something. I I just can't hardly watch the news anymore. You know why? Because it's bad news. It's just bad news. We live in a country that's part of a world that has lost its hope. And so we're going to just tear other people up because surely they're to blame. If you want to really get mad, get mad at the devil. Get mad at sin. Get mad at yourself. And take the message of John the Baptist and apply it in your own life and then by all means, share it. See, what I want you to take home from this today, the whole thing gets down to this point. There's a little bit of John the Baptist in you. Somebody in your circle desperately needs Christ. Do you care enough about them to tell them? I mean, they're in your circle. This, this is not the pygmies over in Australia. This is in your circle. These are the people that you've said, I'm going to build my life with these people. Do you care enough about them to take the stand that John the Baptist took? I mean, he stood in the face of some pretty powerful people, said, you're a bunch of, well, I started to say idiots, but we have young children in here, so I won't say that. Snakes, does that help you? What kind of courage does it take? to be a witness for Christ. Let's pray. And fathers, we come to this time, we recognize that this is straight-up difficult stuff. We prefer the nice, comfortable Christianity that says I'll go to church and I'll get my fill and I'll worship and go home and listen to my Christian music on the way home and maybe a few preachers and have a nice, comfortable Christianity. And yet you call us out into the dirty world, dangerous, resistant, vindictive, and lost. 
You call us into that dark place as those who point to the light. Help us to get that. Give us a story to tell. We might find our place in that long history of salvation that you have been working your way with, with our lives and for so many centuries. Help us to find our role and help us to embrace it to the glory of God. In Jesus' name.